Hello, everyone. Come on in to our pad here at She Said, She Said. We're so excited today to be kicking off our first 2021 theme show. This year, She Said, She Said is going to let the sunshine in on those mellow make love, not war days of the late 1960s when hippies roamed the land, the Grateful Dead performed for flower children in Hate ashberrys Park, and the Beatles taught us that all you need is love. So for the next nine months, we're going to be taking you on a magical mystery tour through those colorful days and introducing you to some of the people who made it all happen. I am your co-host, Lena Stagg the culinary chef and author of the recipe records series of rock and roll cookbooks. And in my four volumes filled with recipes, rock music, history, music, trivia, and fun. There are plenty of recipes to celebrate that laid back and creative time from 1967 to 1970. In the first volume, simply entitled recipe records, you can slip into the mood of 1967 with one of my favorite brunch recipes, I am the eggs man. Then my recipe record 60s edition gives you chocolate lovers a chance to walk on the wild side with incense and peppermint bark. It's so easy to make and so good. Then in recipe records, a culinary tribute to the Beatles. You can sip a little get back Joe spiced coffee with a yummy slice of apple scruff cake. And last but not least, in my latest book, The Rolling Scones, Let's Spend the Bite Together, I'll take you down to those hazy days of the late 60s with some shaken, not stirred, Ruby Tuesday martinis. Each and every Recipe Records book provides you with a very groovy list of songs that you can play as you cook, songs designed to whisk you right back to that era where everyone was going to San Francisco, and we all had flowers in our hair. So check out the Recipe Records series and also my children's books at lanastag.com. I highly endorse them. They will, oh my gosh, the recipes are so good. Hey guys, it's Jude Sutherland Kessler, Lena's trusty sidekick and author of the historical narrative series that takes you on that journey through John Lennon's life and times with his mates, the Beatles, and with our guest today. It's called the John Lennon series. As Lena just said, we are thrilled to have everybody here for our very first Psychedelic Beatles show of 2021. We've had a couple of other shows this year. We were finishing up our series on the Beatles family, and we're so thrilled to have Julia Baird with us two months ago. And it was just one of the highlights of our life, to be sure. And we have also had one of our famous eye candy shows. And today is kind of a combination of our hashtag eye candy shows and our first psychedelic show, because our guest today is definitely hashtag eye candy, innovative, interesting, and really someone that you're going to want to meet. Now, you've got to know that Lena and I are decked out in our ultra bell bottoms. We've got on our sugar and ice white lipstick and our paisley face paint because as we're sipping our ice cold frescas and eating our salty Charles chips, and if you know what I'm talking about, you definitely lived through the 60s, we're going to go back in time and we're going to make those days of the psychedelic Beatles come to life today. But before we do, I want to just tell you very quickly that if you have been waiting for volume five in the John Lennon series, Shades of Life, 
you might want to listen to Joe Johnson's Beetle Brunch coming up the weekend of June 5th and 6th. That's coming up in a week because there is a big announcement. And if you can't wait until then, you might take a peek at the John Lennon series website. So uh, we are looking forward to a fun and fab update in just a few days. Right, Lena? Yes, we are. So be sure you go to johnlennonseries.com. You will not be disappointed, I promise. So, yes, Jude and I are in a very celebratory mood today, and not just about our book projects, but because we have with us today one of the key players in the Beatles story, a man who was a fixture in the Apple headquarters and who was with the Beatles day in and day out during the psychedelic era, and who even devised the, the look that the Beatles adopted when they shed their early Beatles image. That's right. It was all down to him, and he's going to talk about that. He was really good friends with Sir Paul, and he was there during the early days when Yoko came on board and really got to see the inside workings of Apple, and, and he came to know all of the Beatles through... Well, we'll let him tell you, but the Beatles had great respect for him because as an accomplished stylist and an artist from the Vidal Sassoon School, he truly created the look that made Swinging London so mod and so singular. He has a wonderful book out that's called The Cutting Edge that you all have to read because it tells the very unique and interesting story about the Beatles. And let me tell you something, after having read 500 plus books on the Beatles, I almost opened the cover of a book with dread because I know I'm going to hear the same old stories. They may be told a slightly different way, but it's the same stuff over and over again. I did not know the stories in this book. They were completely unique, and it's one of the few insider glimpses into the world of the Beatles from a person who is really there from almost the beginning all the way to the very end. And on top of that, it is not a tell-all book. Our guest today treats the Beatles with great respect and with great integrity. So Lena and I are extremely honored to welcome to She Said, She Said, the one and only Leslie Cavendish. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Jude. Hey, Lena. Thank you very much. Hope you're both well. It's afternoon for you and evening for me, but that's you're great. Right. Well, well, we are very, very grateful that you are joining us here on She Said, She Said. Our listeners are going to adore listening to you, for first of all, but also hearing about uh, your your excellent adventures through that you've shared in your book, The Cutting Edge. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I, I love in the book, you refer to yourself um, in one, one chapter, just very briefly as perhaps you were the inspiration for Billy Shears. <laughs> um, yes, it could, you could interpret it, but um, the other people have said that, but uh, it was uh it's a nice story. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We love it. So, so Leslie, set the stage for us, if you will. You're 15 years old and you have great dreams of becoming uh -huh. something really great, being the best of the best. And you, I know you were interested in girls. And so it sort of led you to the salon of Vidal Sassoon and tell the listeners about 
what it was like to get accepted into his school and and yeah. and how you applied and and that's a, a funny story it's a great story share that with our listeners i will indeed it's um you're right i did like girls um and i liked football um and i wasn't very good at art and i wasn't very good at um making things but uh, i wanted to be a footballer that's how it started but um, to sort of move on to 15 years old when you left school in England, if you wanted to and not uh, study, I went to pick my mother up um, at a hairdressing salon not far from where uh, we used to live in North London. And um, I did see a great big American car outside this place, which was called Burnt Oak, which is not the sort of uh, Hollywood Boulevard type of place. <laughs> it was uh, a North London suburb. Um I saw this American car there. I walked in just going to take my mum home, uh, sat down, and there was this uh, guy, blonde hair, and I think it was his wife who um, he had a salon with, uh, three other women stylists, and I was the only guy in there, just sitting there. And I'm watching him finish my mum's hair, and I suddenly thought, what a nice way to go to work. You know, you wake up, you go into, into work, and you're surrounded by lovely ladies. And not only that, <laughs> You're just creating a hairstyle for them um, and they're letting you do it. So the trust is between the hairdresser and the client. I thought it was quite fascinating. Um, one of my best friends um, who left school at the same time, we still are good friends. Um, I asked him what he was doing because he should have been a footballer. He said, Leslie, I'm going into hairdressing. I said, oh, I wonder why. <laughs> we both looked at each other. <laughs> and, uh, I thought, right, okay, he's... Um, He's on the same wavelength. We're both on the same wavelength. So I thought I was going to go and join him at his salon, which was in Baker Street, um, if anyone knows the part of London. And uh, he said, no, no, don't come here. He said, there's a guy that's really, you know, we're copying him, a guy called Videl Sassoon. Um, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know if that was a hairstyle or not. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> Strange name to have. Um, anyway, I went home and um, my mum's sister was living with us with her two um, children. Well, she was um, getting divorced. And I happened to say, Mum, I'm going, I've got this appointment um, for Videl Sassoon. And the moment I said it, uh, my aunt uh, turned around and said, Oh, you know, when you go there, um, give, Mr. Videl, uh, give Videl my love. So I said, Well, where do you know him from? And she said, Well, I used to go to the clubs in the East End of London. I said, Really? I said, That's amazing. And said, Yeah, he's an East End boy. I said, what, with a name like Vidal Sassoon? She said, yeah, he's Portuguese, and that kept his name. So I made this appointment. On thinking, you know, on the day, or just a few days before, I thought, oh, my God, I'm hopeless at art, I'm hopeless at drawing. What do I do? What do I do to show that I'm in control? I, I know what I'm doing. And I made this wooden bowl uh, at school, which was um, my proud possession, because... It was done on this lathe, and the guy, the teacher, said, you'll never be any good at it. And he's right, but it, it was a wobbly wooden bowl. Yeah. So I thought, I know, I'll take that up. So I put it in a plastic bag. And if you know London, I got out of Bond Street Station. You go down Bond Street, which is where Jude and uh, Lena, you would uh, be memorised down there. You know, Your eyes would pop out with the jewellery, the clothes, mm. everything. Very chic place. Yeah. And I worked my way down to number... Um, 171 New Bond Street, right in between the, the Queen's Jewellers, Aspreys, right next to Gucci, right next to Cartier. I mean, you can't get better wow. than that. It was this great big floor-to-ceiling glass uh, salon, nothing like the place I picked my mum up. 
there were beautiful lilies on the uh, on the table, and and uh, I thought, oh my god, it's just very intimidating. So I sat down, and they said, uh, I said, I've come for an appointment. I have an appointment, and they said, fine, I'm waiting. And it was what was amazing about the place was um, there was no music, and but there was a, um, a mezzanine chaise lounge where women were had their hands in sort of <laughs> tiny little buckets and had feet in little buckets, you know, not knowing that <laughs> pedicures and medi- uh, manicures goes on there. And this guy comes along, the manager, Mr. Gordon. And he said, uh, Leslie? So I said, yes, he said, follow me. So I went through the salon there and there were, it was great. And I suddenly saw, I thought I saw a famous lady there called Shirley Bassey. But, you know, when you go <laughs> through the day, when you see these people on stage, they look the part. But when you see them sort of uncut, basically, um, you know, I thought, oh, was that Shirley Bassey? Awesome. Okay, so I walked, <laughs> walked down the stairs, sat down, and the guy says to me, okay, he said, Leslie, um, you know, what's your interest in, in hairdressing? So I said, oh, I said, um, first of all, can I just say my Aunt Gladys uh, says hello to Mr. Vidal? <laughs> He's looking at me like I'm nuts. <laughs> I thought, that, that, that may get me through the door. <clears throat> and then he said, talking, so... As I said, I said, you know, um, oh, by the way, um, I picked up my bag, put this wonky wooden uh, bowl on the table. He said, um, <laughs> you see the way, he thought someone was nuts. He, I put it on the table. He just said to me, he just looked at it. And I said, you see the way I've shaped this bowl? <laughs> this is the way I can shape women's hair. <laughs> you know, I will work this as soon as I'll be able to do it. And I just left it at that. I thought that would be the clinch. That was not only my... <clears throat> Aunt Gladys saying hello to him. Just the wood bowl would be the turning key, and he looked at me and he'd sort of strange look, you know. Um, didn't talk much after that. I don't know where do you live, where far, whatever, whatever. Anyway, basically, he just said to me, um, "Thank you very much, and he would be in touch." When I walked out and saw all these guys and girls in their in their in their the, the, the guys had white had light blue uniforms on. Um, to the collar, like old, oh, like beetle, um, collarless uh, uniforms. Um, the guys were looking very chic in their lovely suits or, or tapered shirts. And um, was that going to be me? Walked out thinking, not sure. Walked down Bond Street, went home, thought, no, 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 no. This wooden bowl may have blown it, Leslie. You didn't give it a <laughs> glad it's going to uh, sting it for you. And two weeks later, I get this phone call and said, uh, Right, we've had to think about it. We would like you to uh, start in two weeks' time. And so, okay, I couldn't believe it. And that's how I walked into Vidal Sassoon on that wonderful day in 1963, I think it was. Oh, and, um, oh I love it. There it is. That that's the <laughs> to uh, the so-called world of uh, fashion. <laughs> that... well, I didn't know at the time that he was the centre of fashion. He was doing haircuts. He was got away from that whole... Buffont, Dusty Springfield type of look, who actually, I've got a lot to thank Dusty Springfield for, but I'm talking about just the hair. Uh, he got away from that whole look and he brought in this new, um, you know, cutting by geometric and, uh, and making the hair look so important and using the neckline of women. Uh, it's fantastic. I mean, I didn't realise that this was a revolution going on in hairdressing and uh, it was great to be there from, from the beginning. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I, and that's what I enjoyed reading in your, your book about how, what an art form that it was, that you were 
you were creating the hair to 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 go around and to complement the natural you know natural features mm-hmm. of your clients and i i found that fascinating because usually people just take a picture in and say i want this well that's and- one of the things that at Vidal's, believe it or not um, many many people walked in so you've got to remember the haircut and the mary quant short skirt look um that you got the two geometric looks together and mm-hmm. he used to do her hair so women used to come in and bring in cut out pictures from Vogue or, or Elle magazine or whatever magazine there was and say, can I please look like that? And you've got to be very diplomatic because you can't really say, look, madam, it's not going to suit you or you're, you're too ugly for that or, or whatever. You, you can't <laughs> say that. But what you've got to do is you've got to improvise with a haircut. So if somebody wants a short geometric haircut and they've got, um, I don't know, maybe their ears are not pulled together or whatever, you have to actually try to complement that haircut or improvise. If they insisted that he didn't, that they wanted it and it wouldn't look good on them, or they wanted a haircut, they wanted their hair done not having a Sassoon haircut, Mr. Sassoon said to us, if you're not happy with it, don't do it. Send them somewhere else. <laughs> Which is amazing. Wow. We used to many times. I had to, you know, the guy that got the sort of leftovers from Sassoon's must have made a fortune because there were lots of people that wouldn't have it. The, the, the normal answer was, "It's my money. I have what I like." In a way, that's true. <laughs> but to uh, for Vidal to have stipulate that was something very confident in him, and he and he, and he made that with all his stylists. So everybody that walked out looked good. And I think that is a wow. terrific. Uh, yeah way of doing things. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I think it's fascinating. So, okay. So quite by accident, you get the opportunity to cut Jane Asher's hair and that led to big things. So we would love to hear that story. Yeah. So as I say, as, as you walk, you become this apprentice, you know, you do a three-year apprenticeship and the whole idea is to work for someone for three months, four months, and you swap around. So you get used to every different style of every different hairdresser. So some are good at chignon, some are good at long hair, short hair, whatever, whatever. So you get your own ideas and see how you can put it, knit it all together over a period. And this guy who I worked with, a guy called Roger Thompson, who was probably the, the, as good a hair cutter as Sassoon's. In fact, he was artistic. He, he became artistic director of uh, Sassoon's in New York. And um, he was a fantastic hairdresser, uh, but the slowest guy that you could ever wish to meet. Mm. And while I worked, because um, we would sometimes get in at eight o'clock or half past eight, and we have clients every half an hour, he would build, he could take 45 minutes, sometimes it took an hour. So clients mm. built up and it was a long wait. But a lot of the clients he had, one of the clients he had was Jane Asher, which was his client. And I used to go and wash her hair. And she had very long, um, beautiful sort of uh, red hair, very thick. So Roger used to just trim the ends. And I used to go and blow dry it, uh, which would take about 30 minutes. And then I would, when I'd finished, I would go over to him and I'd say, Mr. Roger, that Miss um, um, Asha is ready for you to look. And she's a bit of a hurry. So maybe you could just go over and just see if everything's OK, which he would do. Um, and uh, that's what I used to do. And I got used to, must wash the hair loads and loads of times. But this time I've now, you know, done a year apprenticeship there. I've done uh, two years apprenticeship. And while I was there, the Jane 
um, I become a stylist. I did it in two and a quarter years instead of three years. So I've become sort of a, a so-called junior stylist. And when she came in without an appointment, the receptionist would come up to me and say, uh, Leslie, can you do Jane's hair? Roger's a bit busy and um, she just wants it blow dry. So I said, yeah, that'd be fine. And I, that's what I did. But I got someone else to wash it. And then I started, uh, if she wanted a little trim for my hair. And happened two and three. On the fourth occasion, she came in and the receptionist said, Leslie, Jane's not very happy. You know, she's Roger's client. Roger, again, hasn't got time to um, do her hair. She's not very happy with this. Um, would you do it? And I said, yeah. And it was a Saturday morning. It was about, you know, about 11 o'clock, 11.30. We only used to work half a day. So I went through the whole procedure again. Somebody washed their hair. I started um, uh, blow drying it and I just trimmed her hair slightly. And I was finished and I was going to football in the afternoon, um, and, uh, which was in West London. And as I finished, I showed her the back mirror, which I'd done two or three times before over a period. Mm. She said to me, um, what are you doing this afternoon? And I mm. thought for a second, I thought, what does she mean by that? And I said, um, oh, why is that, Jane? And she said, oh, and this is great. I must tell you something else. Whenever she came in, and one of the rules was we never talked about, we all knew that she was Paul McCartney's girlfriend, fiance. You never asked her about Paul McCartney, never asked her about the Beatles. She would talk about her films that she was doing. So, you know, we never sort of invaded her privacy. Mm -hmm. So she suddenly said to me, um, have you got, she said, oh, I said, um, well, nothing. Why? What is it, Jane? She said, have you got time to cut my boyfriend's hair? <laughs> I got time to cut your boyfriend's hair. Yes, I would, uh, let me think about this. Uh, yes, of course. And she said, I said, what time? Um, she said, what time suits you? And I push my luck, and I, the football game starts at 3 o'clock. It finishes at 5, and from West London, which is uh, Shepherd's Bush, I, um, McCartney lives over in St. John's Wood. I knew it would take me about 25 minutes. And I said, would 5.30, 6 o'clock be okay? Thinking that was much too late because she's asked me, you know, just by 12 o'clock time. Uh -huh. I thought if she says, well, it's too late, I would say I'll come now, or you tell me when to come. And she just said, it's fine. So I said, oh, okay, lovely. Okay, great. I said, uh, could you tell me where you live, please? I need to know the address. So she said, okay, gave, got a bit of, she got some pen and paper out. And she wrote down 7 Cavendish Avenue. Oh. <laughs> Jane, I said, that's my surname. And she said, well, maybe it was meant, Leslie. <laughs> so oh. I said, so I always look at sort of my lovely dear friend, Roger Thompson, uh, is actually the peep best of hairdressing. <laughs> so that was a, that was a lucky one. You know, that's, that's what happened. That's Have great. you got time to cut my boyfriend's hair? I love it. That's, that's great. That's great. So, so you, you, you cut Paul's hair that day and then eventually you, you know, did it more often and, and you you established not really just a working relationship, but also a, a friendship that uh, blossomed into yeah, a bigger job and, and more, more clients. So tell us about how that happened. It did. It, it, you know, timing, it's all about timing. See, it, I, I cut Paul's hair on September, 1966. And as you, you will give me the exact date and time in candlestick when 
in August, the Beatles played their last concert. So right, we, right. So if you think about it, I was around his house seeing him, what, two weeks later mm -hmm. uh, from there. And wow. from the age, from the time he was, what, 50, in 1959, 60, 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, 66, he's been a Beatle. Every day, yeah. he, Brian Epstein made sure they looked good. He was fantastic with it. The image looked good. Uh, he ironed out all the creases, and they've traveled everywhere, and every day they're a Beatle. They've got to get up, do interviews, got to do this, do that, make sure they all look John, George, Paul, and Ringo look okay. Now, when I've met him, he was unshaven. He was looking, uh, he was wearing mm. one of these um, tank tops, a uh, pair of jeans, you know, it, it was great. He must have been absolutely great getting up one day, suddenly thinking, God, I really don't have to be a Beatle today. I can just be, I could be Paul McCartney. So I could be who mm -hmm. I like. So I caught him at the right time. So in between everything else, um, he was, um, he had his own, he had time. So he had time to be at home. And that's how my relationship came in. So I used to go around to his house, which is great because this would never have happened if he had come to the salon. Um, so I used to cut his hair. And before I used to cut his hair or even after, you know, I couldn't talk to Paul or any of the Beatles about um, uh, football, which is uh, soccer in the States. Right. Which is something that I love to talk about or sport generally. Um, I never had that sort of um, conversation with him. So what do you ask? You ask. Are you recording anything? Have you written anything at all? And you know, an artist would love to say yes. And he used to say to me, "Yes, I've done this." And what do you think of this? And you know, I've, you know. Then he played something like "Ubla D, Ubla Da" one day. Mm -hmm. And no one. I thought to myself when he when he played that, I said, "Oh, that doesn't sound like a Beatles song." Not even knowing it was "Ubla D, Ubla Da," it was just the song. So I got a sort of first-hand little tweak of that, and. We sort of just started chatting together, you know. Jane was away, and you know, if I was there for a couple of hours, he'd play, he'd play me something, or we'd have a little talk, have some tea, and muck about with his dog. I used to have a dog called Ernie, and if you look in my book, the book is dedicated to my rock and roll spaniel Ernie. Aww. And Ernie used to come with me, and Ernie was having a great time with Martha. So um, the four of us had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And it was right about that time that you literally reshaped Paul's appearance. You just picked up the scissors and changed history, didn't you? Well, that was a that was a, uh, one of those situations where, again, the, the situation came about where, as I said, he had time on his side. He, he, he was unshaven at times when I saw him. There were little <laughs> bits of a moustache uh, there, which means you want to go three, four days without shaving, which is fine. And I, I, and I hadn't seen Jane Asher in the salon. And I said to him, I said, oh, I said, um, uh, is Jane working? And he said, yes, she's in Bristol. At the, you know, she's Shakespearean actress. And she was filming, <laughs> uh, I think, Midsummer's Night Dream or doing the stage play. And I said, oh, are you going to go down and visit her? Because you've got time now. He said, I'd love to. He said, I can't do that because uh, when I go there, it's all about the Beatles, what we're doing. We're going to record again. It's unfair on Jane. Um, right. And, and it's not fair. So, no, the answer is uh, carry on just doing his hair. Uh, by the way, I'm doing his hair in his bathroom, in the bathroom mirror. So it's no uh. sitting on a great throne with uh, people around. It was just the mirror. 
a stool from the dressing table <laughs> and me and him talking to him in the mirror. And I said to him, I said, oh, when she finishes, um, we bit, I suppose you're going to go on holiday with her. He said, no, again, another problem. And as I'm, I'm cutting his hair and I'm, his hair is all being pushed back. So his hair is, picture it, off his forehead as I'm talking mm-hmm. to him. And I said, what a shame. I said, that's really, you know, what a pity you've got time. You can't do this. And I just said, oh, I don't know. Why don't you go in disguise? No one, you know, no, no one will know who you are. Meaning, dress up as a clown. I, I just don't know what I was saying. I just said, just go in disguise. I had no preempt of anything. And he right. just he caught it and he just said, what do you mean? So I said, um, well, I don't know. And while his hair was back, I said, well, why don't why don't you have all your hair cut off? <laughs> said it was a joke type of thing. And he looked at me and he said, well, go and then do it. Oh. Said, what, just cut all your hair off? And he said, yeah, do it. Just do it. And I said, okay, I'll do it. Um, so I started cutting it from the back. So, you know, his, his hair was uh, was a bit longer than the, than a beetle look. It was just beginning it's over the years. It was just getting that look, which is actually a nice look, but... It was a good look. It wasn't too neat looking, which is what I like. Um, and so I started cutting it from the back. And no one really, if you're doing your hair, you don't really want to start from the front because it's too much of a shock. You work your way round. So I was working my way round, and suddenly I come to the ears. And that's, you can't hide that. So I went, I went right down the side of his ear. So his ear lobe was showing, or even a bit more. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then I started, then I started cutting into it from the front and uh, thinning it out and messing it about. So it was pretty short compared to what the beetle looked was. And I thought, my God, Leslie, what have you done? This is like, <laughs> what, what have you done? And the weird thought was, just a little mad thought in my head was, what about if Brian Epstein gets an offer for $100 million for the Beatles to appear next week in, in Shea Stadium or somewhere? He's going to have to say... Oh my God, who's cut your hair? What have you done? You know, it would be one of those situations. It was just a mad thought. And when I finished it, he didn't sort of go, ow, he he didn't do anything. He was just, okay, that's that's fine. Um, I left there. We went downstairs, had our normal cup of tea and whatever. And uh, I left and I thought, oh my. I went home and I thought, that's it now. You've had your fun. You've cut the Beatles' hair a few times. You're not going to get called back for this one, you know. And (laughs) didn't think of anything more. <laughs> Five weeks later, in the in the newspapers, there was a great big article. In fact, there was many articles of Paul McCartney, Jane Asher, and Mal Evans coming back from Nairobi, Kenya, on a safari uh, with girls and asking him getting away with it completely, no one knowing who he was, until he came back. Obviously, and the press started saying, "You know, how, who cut? Basically, how did you get your hair cut? You know, who cut uh-huh. your hair off?" And I probably would thank Mal Evans for saying, well, actually, it was Leslie. You know, who's Leslie? You know, da, da, da. <laughs> and um, that's how it all came about. And uh, um, it was a haircut that sort of moved on very quickly because they were recording uh, Sergeant Pepper. So they had, he had his short hair there and Lennon had his short hair. Um, and it all sort of fitted together. And that was a great haircut. The, the press article said... Um, the man Leslie, the uh, Leslie the barber who cut, who made poor a skinhead. That I've got a <laughs> of articles of that. Yeah, I've literally got the headline: the man that made oh. the poor a skinhead. 
And uh, if you look at those pictures, if you think about it, you wouldn't know that was Paul McCartney. You, people would know now because we've all seen what they look yeah. like. But at the time, you're thinking it's the cute one. That's not the cute uh, one. That's a yeah. <laughs> well, you definitely you definitely defined that signature look of their last years together because, you know, once Paul does it, then everybody else Ooh. wants to transition, you know, yeah, into exactly. that that look. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's a dedicated followers of fashion, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, oh, we are. We are. Now, one of the stories that I love most in your book is the way that you showed the personality of each beetle in the way they reacted to your styling their hair. And it said so much about who they were. Tell everybody what they were doing when you were cutting their hair, because it really conveys their each each beetle's personality. Okay, so Paul, as I said, you, we've been through the Paul thing, and that was all okay. No questions asked. All the time I ever cut the Beatles' hair, or with them, or doing it, not one person ever said to me, they never had a stylist around them. There was no one saying, no management ever came and said, well, you know, the Beatles look like this. And I think that when, you know, obviously when Epstein was around, he he formed that look, which I think is great. You know, he, he got them into the Chelsea boots, the suits, different suits. They look good. Um when, when, as I say, I, I, I reached the stage with them, it's when they hung up their guitars in, in Elton Park, is when I thought this, when they took their ties off, they were loose. So they all became different. So when I used to cut George Harrison's hair, George had fabulous hair, and um, he, George, Ringo, and John lived in the countryside, uh, in Virginia Water and Weybridge, which is about an hour's drive, if you're lucky, in the traffic. And then right. McCartney, even in the traffic, would take him 10 minutes, 15 minutes the most from his house to the offices, uh, Apple offices. So when George used to come out into town, I used to do his hair. Um, I'm moving the story on a bit. We, they opened up a hairdressing salon for me in the King's Road uh, as part, mm-hmm. of, part of the Apple empire, as it was uh, being formed at the time. And before he went up to the offices, he would come into the salon and he would sort of, it was like meditation. It's, you know, to have your hair washed and blow dried uh, and music on is actually very therapeutic. It's very nice. It's relaxing. You can think, you can do what you like. You just close your eyes. And George was like that. He was to come in. His chauffeur would ring me and say, George is on his way. He's okay. That's fine. And he'll come in. I'd put some music on and we'd have a little chat. Again, I used to talk to him. Um, not too much. He was one of those people you you sort of knew when to talk to because he was mm-hmm. a bit deep in his own thoughts. But I did ask him a few times, you know, also again, as a, as a bit of a music groupie, uh, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm learning this, um, you know, this guy, Ravi Shankar, he plays the sitar. I'm, play, I'm learning the sitar or playing the sitar, which is never part of my orchestra at the time but I thought oh okay great see the little thing then we put some music on um and he would just sort of just drift off I would mm-hmm. half an hour 45 minutes later his hair would look say George it's all done for you and he'd shake his head you know because he, he had long hair and uh, he was fine and he was very sort of I didn't know what was going in his head at the time I wish I'd knew at the time because what I know now <laughs> I would have had much <laughs> 
for conversations with him, but uh, he, you know, he was a bit more than uh, he gave away. <laughs> you know, he didn't give away yeah. much, but there's a lot going on in that head of his. Um, yeah, so yeah. He, he was he he was good, and he was very peaceful, literally to be around. There was no sort of hypertension. Not like with John Lennon. That was like uh, the, <laughs> the headmaster coming. And, you know, when they used to go into Apple, um, you know, if you can picture this, you've got the office workers there and Paul would come in and, you know, he would, Paul was Paul, he'd bounce in, say hello to everybody and everyone would put people at ease. Ringo would do the <laughs> same, you know, he'd come in morning, you know, whatever. Um, and George would float through. And then when Lennon came in, it's like the headmaster <laughs> It was like, you'll sit up in your chair, sit back straight, you know, what moods are you going to be in today? And, uh, and that was what the impression I got when I used to see him go in there and what people told me. And, you know, obviously he could be um, like a roller coaster, you know, one minute yeah. up, one minute down. I used to see him when I used to go up to Apple, um, Derek Taylor, who's sort of, if you wanted to have any meetings with any of the Beatles press or whatever, he was really like a fifth Beatle, Derek Taylor, and he was fantastic to me mm. because um, I used to cut his hair and he put me on to loads of the clients at Apple, you know, with Peter Asher as well, obviously James' brother, was it A&R guy there? Um, mm. And I would get loads of clients there, not knowing who they were. You know, one could be this long-haired guy um, who has been recording at Trident Studios, uh, uh, walking around like phased and in another world and Peter Asher said to me can you just trim his hair we've got a new album coming out for him and cut his or trimming his head and he cut it asked him what his name was he said oh my name my name's man is James Taylor you know <laughs> fine you know is he gonna make it um you never knew if they were gonna make it or not because one of the guys who I came quite friendly with who was fantastic and he had Eric Clapton on guitar I think he had Ringo Paul, whatever way, a guy called Jackie Lomax. And yeah. uh, he did a song, you know, he said, I've got this song, Sour Milk Sea, what I wrote with George Harrison. Mm. You know, it had to be a hit. There's no way that song would not be a hit with everything that went around it. Uh, it was a flop. So, you know, yeah. he didn't make it, unfortunately. So you never knew who was around. One day, yeah. was there, um, John Lennon comes running up the stairs always running, you know, and uh, Derek's, you know, he's very observant. He must have said hello to Derek, and Derek may have said to him, what we're doing today? And he just said, who's he? He said, oh, uh, that's Leslie, he cuts Paul's hair. He said, well, send him in and cut mine. <laughs> and <laughs> exactly what he said. And Derek said, uh, John wants you to go into the boardroom there and do his hair. I said, does he? Okay. Mm -hmm. I walked in there. Now, you would think, number, quite a few thoughts went through my head. Number one, why am I going into the boardroom? <laughs> Number two is I walk into the boardroom and there's a journalist there and she, and they were, you know, they were talking about music and I was just sort of trimming his hair a bit. I'm thinking, well, why would someone do that while they're answering questions? Anyway, that was the first time. And on the second time, the same scenario, except there was a very small lady there dressed all in black and he was sitting on a swivel chair and she was, um, he was looking down. She was, this person was quite small, sitting on a chair there. And I was trying to do his hair. It was never, uh, hi, Leslie, how are you today? You know, I would say to him, hi, John, how are you? It's like, oh, fine. You know, like I wasn't there. It was like, but you know, I was there to do his hair. He wanted it done. I don't know why. 
And I started just trimming his hair and he kept moving it forward, which is really annoying if you've got people's hair. You've got to be, you know, you should really chop into someone's hair. And all I heard was, I don't understand what you're talking about to this person. And I'm thinking, that's strange. You know, my ears are, you know, wide open now. And, uh, and uh, I'm thinking, well, why is he, talk- why is he saying that? If, she- if she's a journalist asking about music, and he doesn't understand what she's talking about, unless he doesn't understand it. And kept going on saying, I don't know what you mean. Explain to me more. And this person was explaining whatever she was trying to explain, which I later found out was this art um, uh, at her exhibition at the gallery at uh, uh, at the gallery in London, and, uh-huh. and it was Yoko Ono. It was the first time, and I didn't know that. And I stayed around a little bit longer than normal because I was fascinated by it. I, you know, I, I suddenly been there long enough to trim just what it was. She didn't say anything. He never acknowledged me. I left. Mm. I think I, if I said goodbye, he never he never said goodbye. He just left. I could have just, very strange, very strange. So <laughs> there you go. That, that was John Lennon uh, situation. Uh, I did have a, yeah. I did uh, a few years, a couple of years later, we had a, did have a funny, see, people talk about Lennon and, and they can, they can have a bad experience with him, which is fine. I can understand that and people can talk about it. I don't like it when people give opinions about him who've never met him. I know that's a bit unfair right. to say you can get his character. But if you haven't met him, you've got to be careful what other people say about people, you know, what their reason is saying it. So, you know, I was in a situation where I got conned or cleverly conned by a journalist who took me out for coffee and a music Mm -hmm. paper. She happened to be a client of mine as well and said, can I ask Mm -hmm. you um, about the Beatles hair? Which is why not? (laughs) Not to talk about anything. And uh, she was clever. And she said to me, um, Leslie, just wanted to know the texture of the Beatles' hair. And I said, yeah. He said, what, what's Paul's hair like? I said, Paul's got really good hair. You can maneuver around and uh, and uh, and Ringo's. I said, Ringo's got great hair. You know, you've got to give Maureen a lot of credit there because his wife was a hairdresser. I said, yeah, he's, he's got thick hair. You can play around with it. And she said, and George? Uh, I said, George has got luscious hair. You know, it's great. You can move that around. I was just going through a whole hairdressing talk, actually. And she said, and, and uh, Lennon's hair? Um, I said, yeah, it's, it's good. It's all right. So she went, so you mean it's just all right? So I said, well, yeah. She said, is it? So I take it it's not as thick as the other hair. I said, well, no, it's not. The texture is not, you know, I've got too technical again. I said, the texture is not as thick as, you know, the other three. Um, but it's okay. So she said, no, just okay. Yeah. And then she said, well, just, just, why don't we just jump ahead 20 years later? <clears throat> um do you think he would go, he would lose his hair first out of all the Beatles? And I said, well, possibly, you know, yeah. I don't know, but possibly. He said, well, he, think about it. If he's got the thinnest hair of the four, three other Beatles, um, he would probably lose his hair more than the others, like an idiot. I said, well, I suppose if that did happen, I suppose, yes, he would. But then she just dropped that and we carried on mm-hmm. talking about whatever, whatever. Four days later, Derek Taylor, this is the Beatles press officer, right? He calls you in the evening, eight, nine o'clock at night. It's not, hello, Leslie, how are you? (laughs) Right. Leslie, what have you said? And I said, (laughs) I've said what? He said, you've said John Lennon's going bald. And I I said, no, I haven't. What are you talking about? He said, well, 
It's on the newspapers and it's coming out on Friday on the music papers. And the headline <laughs> is John Lennon's going bald, says Leslie, says Leslie, says John's hair, uh, hairdresser. And it's being advertised on the radio, pirate radio station at the time, you know, buy a disc magazine, John Lennon's read about why John Lennon's going bald. I actually heard it. I thought, oh, God, this is going to, this is it. This is it. This is the John Lennon where you've got to, the headmaster's going to give me the cane or something. <laughs> And at the salon there, I knew it. it was on that morning and I knew the phone was going to ring. I knew it. And the yeah. phone rang and it was John Lennon. <clears throat> and he said to me, Leslie, and as he said my name, I, I went into this whole, I said, John, I said, I really didn't say anything. I said, I, I, she, she, she's taken me. And I ended up saying, she took me out of context. You've got to believe. Uh -huh. And with that, he said, shut the bleep up. Uh-huh. Don't talk to me about being taken out of context. Look what they did to me. Said we were bigger than Jesus Christ. Mm, right. He laughed. So, and I went, oh, he's just understood it totally. Uh -huh. It was a little pause. Then he said to me, Leslie, I want to ask you something. <laughs> I said, what's that? John? He said, am I really going beep, beep, bald? <laughs> no, he said, well, come over now. If there's anything on the floor, I'm going to stick it together again. And, <laughs> and I got on the cab, went over to Savile Row, walked in, went upstairs and had a chat with him. He was with Yoko by this time. They were, they were ish together. And um, I did again say to him, look, I'm... <laughs> meanwhile, I've got the newspaper there. He's got the newspaper there. Right? And yeah. I said, no, no. He said, I'm not going bored. And I said, no, no, I'm not going bored. And then I said to him, but John, if I... Let me just cut the ends, because if you keep them that grow and they get split, they will break off eventually. And he went, yes, yes, you're mm -hmm. absolutely right, absolutely right. I thought, oh, right, I've got through to him. Bloody six months later, yeah. he's ended up in uh, Amsterdam on the uh, hairpiece thing. So there you go. But uh, it was funny. And what I liked yeah. about it was his humor was there. And you, I saw his humor to it. He could have really lashed out. You tell a pop star, a music star, a, an icon that he's mm -hmm. going to go bald right it, you could take it the other way and he didn't so yeah thank, thank you yeah. John <laughs> you also saw his insecurity because beneath that what he what he cut to the chase was not someone has you know bashed me but oh my gosh am I going ball and that's John always you know fearful always worried about yeah. the worst so you really, you know, that that's a great story. I absolutely love it. Well, you were in on two of the biggest events of the 1960s, especially of the psychedelic era. One, the rooftop concert, which you knew about. You didn't actually go up there, but you were privy to it before it happened. And the other, which is the one we really want to talk about, is your time on the magical mystery bus. I mean, just a few people were selected to be part of that. And you were one of those with our good friend, Frida Kelly. And there are so many great people. Tell us what it was like to go on that excursion. Um, quite um, quite mind-blowing, actually. I'll tell you why. Because, um, yes, I cut the Beatles' hair individually. I never had a chance. I, I, I did see them in concert. Uh, when I was actually 14 years old, 15 years old, which is wow. story I could tell you an, another time. But I did see them live. Um, but for me to experience to be on a coach, in a there were 43 people on that coach, so take away four Beatles, um, 
and you suddenly think, my God, how am I going to, this is going to be amazing to watch how four people, um, you know, these guys work together. Uh, one of the strange things about it is that um, at the time when I was, when I was at Paul's house and he did say to me, um, it was quite strange, it was a bit surreal because when I was over at Paul's house uh, and he did ask me just three weeks before, uh, Brian Epstein passed away. So it, I thought it would have been a period of mourning and anything they had um, or, or forthcoming events they would have, they, they, would, they would postpone or put on hold till later on till they're ready. But no, no, the show must go on. And, right. um, and they, he said, you know, we're going away on uh, uh, down, to, down to south of England. Uh, there's some fan club members and, uh, and a few people. We've got actors. We've got these one, that one going. You, would you like to come along, uh, be, on the, be a passenger, and you can also do our hair at the same time? I said, oh, I'd love to do that. So um, I couldn't believe it, actually. I, I thought, oh, my God, this would be great. It's seven days with the Beatles. <laughs> How nice is that? And so I met them at, um, as I say, Paul used to live in, lived in London, uh, still does, and the others would live down the countryside. So we arranged to meet at a place called Orsop Place, which is by Madame Two Swords, again near Baker Street. Um, we got there, I got there early and saw uh, quite a few people dressed up in different uniforms. Ivor Cutler as Mr. Blood Vessel. Uh, I didn't even know he was Mr. Blood. He was sitting on the floor with Paul McCartney, leaning on the rails. <laughs> One of the strange things is that um, it was about half past eight in the morning. If you can imagine, uh, it wasn't the best of days, but people going to the office uh, and they were walking <laughs> by and you can imagine you know, people going, is that Paul McCartney on the floor? No, it can't be. <laughs> oh my God, it is Paul McCartney on the floor. Uh, and so I was fun watching that because I hadn't experienced um, sort of um, fan adulation at all. I, had, I hadn't seen that. I, you know, uh, I just hadn't seen that. Heard about it, saw it, didn't see much of it at the concert I went to in the early days. Um, <laughs> but I'd heard about it. And when the odd person did stop and say, you are Paul McCartney, he would, he would sign, the, sign the autograph. He, he was very good at that. We waited and waited, and the coach hadn't turned up. And Paul had arranged with Mal to find out what's going on. Typical thing is the coach hadn't been painted. There'd still be magical mystery tools mm. painted on the side, hadn't been finished yet. So um, we went over, and, and the opposite there, there was a cafe there where the transport drivers, um, train drivers would go after their shift. And Paul and myself just went over and had a cup of tea. It was quite amazing. Just the two of us went over. <laughs> I don't know how it came about. We walked in and then all these guys on their night shift or day, whatever it was, were drinking their tea and, and having their breakfast. And then comes Paul McCartney. And we sit down, mm -hmm. we have a cup of tea. The, the newspaper followed us. There's a big picture of me with Paul McCartney sitting down having a cup of tea with him. Uh, it was all a bit surreal. We get on the coach, finally turns up, pick up the other three. Um, and I'm still thinking, what's, you know, Brian Epstein you know, died two, three weeks ago. They get on the yeah. coach. It was fun. And what was fun about it, you saw Ringo sat next to um, Aunt Jess in the front seat. And that was seemed to be the only script that was sort of... Uh, improvised but they knew what they were doing just shouting and screaming at one another that was really what that was all about it was quite funny um the other two john and george sat next to uh sat next to each other for quite a yeah mostly sat next to each other during the course of the journey and consequent uh, and other days as well 
Paul was the was like the you know I call Paul McCartney the conductor of the Beatles. He was with the um, director saying working out what they're going to do, where we're going to go, and they were just heading into a direction where nothing was. It was slightly improvised, but uh, you know I'll give you an example. There's a place they were going to Whitcomb, which is a, a Whitcomb Fair, Whitcomb Fair, mm -hmm. and trying to go over the bridge. Well, no one sussed that the coach was too big to. <laughs> They got stuck. They actually got stuck. So they had to reverse the coach. They never did go to, to the fair. So they had to reverse, and it was fun. And it was all being filmed at the same time, you know, and everything was being filmed. Lennon went nuts. He jumped out, and I didn't see him kick the other side, the side of the coach, but I did understand that he didn't like the idea of, um, of this not being organised. I, I never saw, on the, while I was on the coach, John or George really take any participant, uh, give any direction on what was going on. It was all directed by Paul, what was going on. They did their own thing, obviously, on when the women got out the coach, because they were doing um, um, different different scenes altogether and dressing up. Paul dressed up as an army man, and we stopped off in the middle of a field, and there was a tent there. And supposedly, we were all supposed to crawl under this tent and end up the next scene, which was shot somewhere else. You look round, there's George Harrison in an oversized blue jacket, cross-legged in the middle of a field. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, surreal things like, and it was fascinating to watch all this. And, uh, and then when you get down to Cornwall, you get down to um, Torquay, where we ended up, people did come up to them and ask, and they were terrific. I've got to say, you know, they did not act like prima donnas. They acted in a... I was surprised. Was I surprised or not surprised? I don't know. I don't know. They weren't the type of people who three years before were pulling their hair out and throwing jelly beans at them. You know, they were quite polite. Um, I just said, can we have your autographs? We love you. Kept here. Everyone loved each other. Everyone loved George. Everyone loved Ringo. Everyone this, that, and the other. But it was fun, and it was really great to see and felt quite privileged, you know, that just watched, watched this uh, evolve. So yeah. it was quite an amazing yeah. story. Lots of nice stories happened down there as well. Yeah, there, your book is full of stories that people have never heard before. And, you know, so many people in the Beatles world have read everything. And, you know, as I said earlier, I really thought, oh, no, please don't let this be the same stories I've heard a thousand times. And it certainly is not. So if you had to, you know, we want to save a bunch of the stories for people to read in the book. And again, the the title of the book is The Cutting Edge, Leslie Cavendish. Um, it's on Amazon, wherever fine books are sold. But Leslie, if you had to give a a teaser to people of something that they that we haven't discussed, but they definitely need to read in the book, what would you say? Well, let's put it this way. Um, there's a nice little story that happened where Ringo hurt his thumb playing a one string ukulele hmm. uh, in at 11.30 at night after we've had quite a few pints, uh, and Paul sitting playing a piano uh, at uh, all working and fishermen at late at night. I was there, and it's a very funny story because, again, um, how did this happen? It, everything was just improvised. It was a story that said, and then that was a nice little story, and then... Uh, there's lots of little stories. There's one great story there as a teaser. Um, I heard you mention the Grateful Dead. 
before when your intro. Um, the Hell's Angel story is is a bit of a spine chiller, which is uh, you know, the George Harrison invite from Hey Ashbury to come to London. <laughs> uh, no one asked. He didn't mention to them to come and stay at Leslie's his hairdresser's flat, did he? <laughs> so, no one told me that. Um, did they? Did they want you to cut their hair? Uh, well, they were. Um, let's just put it this way: the guy that was with them. Um, I, I will tell this story. I won't tell you what happened with the Hells Angels, but one of the guys, was, there was two guys that came with him. One was Ken Kesey, from, who wrote um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, the other one was the Grateful Dead's uh, manager. And the other one was a long-haired, blonde guy. And uh, I didn't know who he was. And I, was, uh, into, I had my friend at the time, a lady called Miss O'Dell, Chris O'Dell, who's yeah. one of my best friends. And this guy said, oh, you cut the Beatles' hair. Or one of the guys said there, said yes. And he said, oh, would you? I looked at this guy's hair. And I, he said, oh, can you just trim my hair? So it was only a tiny bit to cut. I was very nervous, by the way. I'm not going to tell you why I was nervous. Um, and I said, okay. And I just said to him, I said, um, are you a musician? What do you do? He said, so I'm a musician. I said, oh, really good. I said, um, do, you, do you play for anybody I would know? And he said, yeah. He said, um, uh, the dead, you know, the Grateful Dead. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, great. I said, you know what? Jerry Garcia is one of my favorite guitarists. He writes lyrics. No one writes songs better than him. What do you do? He said, I write the songs with Jerry Garcia. And oh, I said, wow. I said, <laughs> Oh, oh. And I said, what's your name? He said, Bob Weir. And I went, oh, my God. Sorry about that. I did check him out. That is a bit like someone coming from space, meeting Lennon, someone saying he's from the Beatles. And then they say, oh, yeah, McCartney writes the best songs I've ever seen. What do you do? He said, actually, I write him with him. So it was a, that was a funny little story that happened. So oh. more stories in that book. That was a taster. It is, it's great. Really great. We love it. We just love it. So most importantly, Leslie, where can people find your book and can they follow you on any social media? Yeah, I don't do that. I, you can follow me on Facebook and my name and they can go on my website, which is um, also some nice uh, photos and little stories there and on uh, www.beatleshairdresser.com. And you can get my book from uh, www.beatlesbookstore dot com or you can message me i have uh, some books here that i can personally sign for you um so yeah or you can get it on amazon uh, it, you can get it if anyone's out there speaks spanish you can get a spanish version of it which is uh, which is nice um and yeah there's plenty of ways you can get it but beatles bookstore is a good one and contact me and i will always be happy to ask them for any questions yeah i'm very happy i'm happy that people still I mean, you know, interested in the Beatles and, uh, and it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing. It's brilliant. So, yeah, it, 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 you, you really did write a great book. It is, it's so, um, it's so enjoyable. And, and I found myself just so excited to just keep, keep reading it. it. I, my time to read is very, very small. And so I, I just hated every time to put it down because it's it, the the stories make you smile, just Thank make you. you smile. So go to beetleshairdresser.com 
and okay. Beatles Bookstore. So yep. and Leslie is also on Facebook. But very sadly, Leslie, we are out of time for today, but we thank you for staying up so late in the UK to be with us tonight and for sharing your riveting stories about swinging London and the Beatles and, and your life. There's so much more about your life in the book too. And, and it's fascinating. It's a, it's a terrific story. So Jude and I are hopeful that we can meet you face to face at the next. Look forward to it. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed for the invite to Jude and to you, Lena. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been very enjoyable. Loved it. We've loved it. Just loved it. Let me ask you one quick question before you go. Sure. Do you still have the bowl? No. Oh, oh no. no. What a shame. I haven't got the bowl, but you know that that bowl has me somewhere. That's true. That bowl said, you know, I was a nothing before Leslie. <laughs> oh, well, I just, I'm, I thought I would have it under a glass dome because... <laughs> It should be in the Beatles Museum somewhere. I don't know. Really? No joke, really. Well, thank you, Leslie. Thank you thank for you sharing indeed. your time with us. We appreciate it so much. Thank you indeed. And have a enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks. All right. Thank and you. thank all of you for tuning in and turning on tonight. Um, the clock is ticking away. So we're going to have to drop out now, but not before we remind you to keep watching Facebook, Twitter, and the John Lennon Series website, Nudge, Nudge, Wink, Wink, for a big announcement any day now about the release of Volume 5, Shades of Life. And check out my hot off the press chapbook on those smooth, mellow years of the 1970s, the age of yacht rock, as they called it, at lanastag.com. It's an abridged preview of my 70s cookbook which will be full of recipes and information about the 70s so take a peek at it i think you'll enjoy it and in june join us on she said she said as we host one of our famous hashtag eye candy shows when we welcome a lady who is not only gorgeous but interesting innovative and always in style john's best friend from liverpool college of art the one and only haloon Helen Anderson, not only was Helen John's constant companion during his college days and a friend of Stu Sutcliffe's as well, but in the 1970s, she went on to become the costume designer for the TV show Dallas, and she has so many amazing stories to tell, and it's all coming up in June on She Said, She Said. Then in July, historian and author, our beloved friend Al Sussman, will get down to the nitty gritty and give us all of the griff, as they say in Liverpool, about what was really going on with Apple, the Beatles, Alan Klein, the Let It Be Project, and all during the psychedelic Beatles era. So no one knows the truth and details the way Al does. He is mesmerizing. So we can't wait for you to hear what he has to share with us. And until then, here's to food for thought food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. ta and shine on.